Scene 6. A Man and His Pickle. John Eakin. Read by Jason Wethington. Followed by original audio recording. If you ever find yourself in Central Florida, check out the town of Celebration. Simply put, it's a living, breathing town straight out of a Walt Disney movie. Its vibrant personality, a perfect reflection of the international community that calls it home, was a perfect setting for the interview we were about to have. John Eakin was one of the first professional entertainers I'd met after moving to Florida. As is the case when you meet a lifelong friend, our first conversation moved from the green room of the event we were performing at into the parking lot and withstood multiple calls from both our spouses. As I've come to know John, he's one of the nicest, most humble people I've ever met. He has an incredible depth of experience working in the world of entertainment. From performing as a magician at backyard birthday parties to entertaining and hosting guests on luxury yachts touring the coasts of Europe, he has quite literally done it all. We arrived at the small Irish pub slightly ahead of John to scope the place out for a good spot to set up. Once John arrived, we ordered a round of pints and began. Um, so we all start off with helicopters. <laughs> Yes. You guys pull this out all the stops. Let's do this wow. real quick. I'm sitting with John Eakin. I'm Joshua Stenkamp and my co-creator, Jason Wethington. And uh, Jay's going to take the first question. Yeah, so we only start off with questions. We've known each other for a, for a while. For a while, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you've been doing... The thing that I know about you is the pickle trick. The pickle trick. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Famous the card and pickle. pickle How many years would you say that you've been doing that trick? Um, I'll tell you what. Uh, my buddy... You know, name dropping. I'm two seconds out of the gate. <laughs> name dropping. But I did. I grew up... Bob Sheets is my adult show mentor. You know, right. I had earlier mentors in Baltimore. But then once I started doing adult shows, it was working with Bob at the Inner Magic. And uh, Bob had this manuscript. He gave me... 30 plus years ago, easily. Uh, and it was the back page of, and I can't remember the name of the guy. You'll contact Bob, he'll tell you. Ah, it was Charlie Smartsworth, whatever it was. Anyway, it was like the back page, like the this extra, here's a cute little routine deal. And Bob said, this would be good for you, John. And I didn't do anything with it until I, was, I got booked at the Boardwalk Resort here at Disney. I was, and it was my first time working in an ensemble. I was There were three of us. It was kind of like based on the classic comedy threes, you know, the Larry Moe and Curly or the uh, Marx Brothers or any of those characters. And I was the, uh, the what do they call it, the high attitude guy. I forget his official name for that. But I, uh, and I, we all had to do something new that we had never done before. And I'm racking my brain because I'm miserable, as you know, at new material. Miserable. And uh, that came to my mind. It's like, hey, that Bob gave me this thing. So it's got like going on somewhere between 15 and 20 years, you know, somewhere in there. So we, we actually put it together with the help of uh, Steve Marshall, who's in Japan now, uh, Rob Zeiser, who's in Guam now, as you know, and uh, Mark Renfro, who's a show director, great circus variety backgrounds. The three of them helped me put it together, and it's morphed quite a bit. I don't know if you know about the cracker bit and stuff that I used to do well, back in the original. We're going to ask about that a little okay. bit later on. My, my real question is, how many people do you think have touched your pickle? Oh, not oh. nearly enough. 
not nearly enough, especially since I've gone to the prosthetic pickle. Uh, right, yeah. You know, I had whole, to, that's another whole bowl of wax there. Right. Yeah, exactly. Is it multiple prosthetic pickles, right? Three, you three. Yeah, three. In the eye. One gaffed, the other two are straight, as it were. <laughs> well, we John, how did you get into magic? How did you get your start? You know, uh, I grew up in Baltimore, which is a great place, and, uh, you know, I was really lucky. I was probably 10 or 11, and I was involved in the Boy Scouts, and it was something like Circus Month or Magic Month. Whatever it was, I had to do a magic trick for the group, and my mom uh, opens up the Yellow Pages, which you can explain to our listeners what those used to be, because uh, <laughs> we don't have many more. And we look, and uh, I was in the suburbs of Baltimore, but in downtown Baltimore, right in the city, was a, a, a magic shop the Yogi Magic Mart. And uh, we went down there one Saturday and it really was like the old curiosity shop. There was no, a tiny sign next to a, just a green door. You opened it up, a set of stairs went up to the second level and 14 foot high ceilings and real narrow shelves everywhere, glass cases piled high with books and a whole thing of dove pants, another whole thing of rice's silks and catalogs, I mean, piles everywhere. And peeking out between there was this guy named Phil Thomas, uh, Lovely, lovely. Kind of became my adopted grandfather and his wife, Anne. They were both widowed and uh, both met. Phil was performing with a religious group on a cruise ship in Greece, and she was the cruise director, and they fell in love. And really fantastic people, and they took me under their wing, and uh, I was hooked all through all through high school. You know, most guys are uh, bagging groceries or cutting grass, and I'm doing kids' birthday. did my first show, when I paid show, when I was 11 years old for a friend of my mom's I got five bucks which uh i think it's still the going rate i'm not sure it hasn't seen hasn't come up and um yeah then i just kind of evolved you know uh, i would hoard my lunch money all week and ride my bike downtown and buy little tricks and stuff you know that kind of a thing so um and so all through that i was that's all i've ever done and um always thought something else would come along it was never really my goal to do this full time but uh you reach a point where you can't really do much else unless you're going to start all over again at a much lower rate and uh, um, and not have anywhere near as much fun. So it has been a lot of ups and downs, but mostly ups. And I mean, I've been really it's it's been really really good to me. It really has been good to me. When you started developing your show, when you're on stage, are you John Eakin or are you a character? Man, Jason, you could probably tell me more about. That's one of the reasons I'm probably not more successful. I don't know that well enough, but uh, you know. I'm mostly myself, but I'd like to think either freer or more spontaneous, perhaps, or what I like to think of as my best self, or at least my more entertaining self or whatever. You know, you can't really be that character sitting around with your friends. They'd hate you. In fact, we know some magicians who are like that, and it's too much, you know, it's too amped up. And, uh, but pretty much myself, um, yeah, pretty and that's why I'm really no good at like I can't sit and write comedy I can't sit and write material um, when I'm on stage I am pretty good at ad-libbing and coming up with stuff so I really do try when something good happens like after the show immediately write it down I should be recording my shows and uh, and then how do I recreate that situation or what was that bit and and over time if you work enough which fortunately at Disney we have worked a lot uh, it's either sink or swim and you kind of 
build it up from there. Jason has told me that you brand yourself as the ambassador of magic. Yeah, you know, like, that's another whole thing. Is that, is that just the title, or do you think that is the character that's on stage? Yeah, over the years, I've actually kind of dropped the, the magic part, to be honest. Uh, now just the ambassador for world-class events is kind of how, because I'm trying to do trade shows and corporate events and MC work and other related stuff. Um, in a lot of the world out there, the magic thing works against you. You know, you say you're a magician and, and immediately people get a certain image in their mind. And it's unless you are an extraordinarily unique character, and I'm not uh, extraordinarily unique, um, people, oh, you're a birthday party guy or, oh, you're, you know, the guy on America's Got Talent or whatever. And uh, it can kind of hold you back if you're going after, say, a corporate speaking gig or an MC gig. It's like, no, you don't necessarily want to be a magician. So ambassador. And the reason that came up was I started out doing a lot of restaurant work and I learned early on, it's hard to approach a table and do a card trick or whatever for them. If they're ticked off because they haven't gotten their steak yet or their beers, something their orders wrong or whatever. So I kind of, no matter where I go, people think I'm a manager anyway. I mean, I'm in target in my dirtiest clothes and people walk up and ask me for, help you know uh, so there's something about my personality that people they trust me they go to me and I play a host really well without even trying I mean it's kind of a natural fit for me so when I started doing trade shows working with Giovanni he's the one that really helped me he was trying to help me with the character he's like ah you know you're the ambassador that's what you are you know you, Giovanni, you, Rivera. Giovanni Rivera yeah Gio and another great influence and somebody else you guys should probably get in here you know as well but um yeah, so Gio's going to help me with the ambassador thing and, uh, I mean, help me with the making it a byline. And, um, yeah, and it's it's pretty pretty good. Do you, do you want to ask this one? Just kind of review some notes here. What would you say are your, uh, like, your main influences in your career? Like, was it theater influence, your music, art, anything really? When you're coming up with a show, is there a specific influence that you use to... Uh, yeah, um, I mean, lots of people, and that's why <laughs> I have friends, Mary's one of them, who we love, but she's like, don't be sharing that good information, don't be, don't, don't tip the gaff, you know, kind of a stuff, and it's like, look, people have helped me so much over the years, if I can help anybody, and what I've learned among magicians is, you can give all the great advice, I mean, really good, you can tip, you can tip the farm, it doesn't matter, if if they're worthy, they'll pick it up and they'll use it. More than likely, they're going to say, oh, that's a great idea, and they'll never do a thing with it. So I don't even worry about that stuff. And if, if somebody is going to put themselves out there and take the risk and and take my advice and try it, and they're successful with it, you know, more power to them. That means they're, they're probably worthy of it. And if not, there's nothing lost. But um, as I, I'm really not a super creative person at all. I think my strength is dealing with people. Um, I'm really good interfacing with people. Um, my one, I have two real personality gifts, I guess I would say, and I'm being totally what analytical or whatever. So, I mean, I'm, I, um, I'm, I'm really likable when people first meet me or when I first come on stage. So unless I do something to touch that, uh, if I can keep going down that road until I step in something, you know, and, and people like me, which is a gift because a lot of performers come out and you don't like them at all when you're, and it takes a while for them to grow on you. So that's a gift. And, and people generally trust me uh, on the cruise ships. We have this game called the liars club where you have to, it's like, you know, to tell the truth, you can, 
they ask you questions and, and one person tells the truth and the rest of you lie. They always believe me, even if I'm lying, because I'm, I'm, I'm pretty trustworthy. So those are kind of my gifts. But the little bit of creative thing, every time I have dipped my toe in trying to be creative, music really does help me a lot. Um, I'll listen to some music. I'm like, man, you know, that trick that I've always really wanted to put in would go really, really great with this. And it kind of gives me a spin on that. And I can't even give you it. Very few things in my show have worked out that way that I can say, oh, yes, this the great you know, <laughs> tornery store flying kite trick or something like that, that I, that I do to let's go fly a kite, you know, or something, you know, it's not there, but, um, you know, when I'm, when I'm alone and I'm in the car and I'm driving and I am, I am, if I were more, truly more creative, music would definitely be, be something that would help me a lot. When, uh, when did you take any performance lessons as far as theater? Or no, I'm a total hack. I really am a hack. You know, this is the thing. And I really envy and admire people who have a more theatrical background or something with some kind of uh, legitimacy behind it, you know. And I, that's why I never really consider myself a uh, an artist in any way. I hope I'm an entertainer. I'm a, I'm a worker, you know. And, uh, you know, my bottom line should be, you could do a lot worse. <laughs> that's what it should really be, something like that. But uh, I'm a worker, you know, and, and that's always been my goal. I've never really wanted to be famous. I've never wanted, like, that Las Vegas contract. Or, that really honestly doesn't. I mean, if it happened, that would be great, but I've never gone after that. I just want to work. And and generally, as you guys know, if you're working, even at the bottom, you're making good money compared to poor people. I mean, the real world people that are really, they're the ones that are really working, you know. Every time I get a bad gig, like I was down in Mexico this summer in Cancun, I swear to God, one of the other guys was working on a new act, this one theater. It's, it's, a, it's covered, but so it's kind of an indoor-outdoor thing, no air conditioning. He was timing his show, and he put one of those little digital clocks in his ditch bag to see uh, how his time was going. Well, next to it was a thermometer built into it, 120 degrees on stage. I mean, you come off, you're literally pouring water out of your shoes. I mean, it's really miserable. And whenever I'm feeling sorry for myself, I think of the worst gig I can think of. This is going back to Baltimore. We had guys, we have tar paper roofs, and, and these poor guys come with these big propane tanks of hot tar and they put buckets they bring it up to the roof and they smear it out and i can smell it and it's hot and blistering and you know so i think of that when i'm feeling sorry for myself you know in cancun, in cancun, cancun. exactly or i think of terry ward on the streets of disney in his wool suit one or the other right, it's, right. it's about the same i think i don't know in the in the you know thousands of performances that you've done is there anything that you do before you go out on stage is there any as we got like a moment of saying, any prep? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, not as far as the show, but as far as yourself, and mental stuff goes. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't have any super duper thing, you know, like routine to go through. I mean, for me, it's more a matter of uh, running running the list in my head, and uh, and that list would all would include my regular show in my head that I said everything that I remember to that I remember to preload the card in the pickle and all that kind of stuff to. But then, but then putting that in context, because we work in so many weird, weird places. I mean, if you're a working guy, unless you've got a guy like Jonathan or Lance, or, you know, you're in a permanent theater or Tony, uh, you know, every single day is different. And, and in my defense of hating to put new material together is I thank God I've got the one show that I know inside and out. Everything that's possibly gone wrong has gone wrong 15 times to me. I know how to prevent it or how to get out of it or what to do if it happens because 
you know, I'm down in Mexico. They put me on this. I'm in. I'm on a, on stairs outside of a lobby coming down, and then it starts to rain. The fire act is on before me, or I'm at the boardwalk doing my pickle routine for the very first time. And I swear to God, I got a sh- 200 people crowded around this outdoor stage. And what comes down? Cinderella's carriage with four white horses come down. Mm-hmm. We have to stop the show. I mean, who who does that? You know. <laughs> so. I don't want new material. It's like, give me my damn pickle. I know I know how it works. That's a great segue because one of the questions is, is how do you cover in a situation? Have you ever had anything go wrong? And if something went wrong, did, you ever, did it ever work out for the best and you kept it in your show? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good question. Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, every show, something goes wrong. I mean, every single show. And, uh, and to me, a good show or a bad show that I gauge myself is how well did I cover it you know that i was i able to get through it the audience had no clue then man i did pretty good that time uh, if the audience i mean sometimes you, the audience can't help but notice that the stage set fell over or something and okay were you able to continue or get through the show um yeah there oh yeah i'll give you a perfect example and it's the pickle routine right so i'm doing uh the, the original routine comes with uh i've totally re- re- redone the handling and i'm really proud of this because i have so little real work that this is one of my few pearls and um, so I've got three pickles in a paper plate, just like the lemons or whatever it would be. But it's like it's filling lemons, is but it's card and pickle. And uh, the original routine had you doing an equivoque to force the pickle, the pickle on the guy, right? So I got three pickles in a paper plate. The, my force guy is to my left on stage. He's standing. I have two guys on stage. The card guy to my right. The pickle guy to my left. And um, and I tried. I had a lot of my 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 good mentor magic buddies trying to help me with well, okay what's the best way to do this magician's force without it looking like a magician's force what's the real work and what it really came down to was pick up two pickles and then hand me one if you know so those are the three stages you know pick up two pickles well if you left the one you, know, you guys know what i'm talking about hopefully the people listening will understand what i'm talking about so one time though the, the force pickles the one closest to me as i turned to my left Either he was too close or I stepped up abruptly, but the pickle started to roll away from me off the paper plate. Well, I reached up and I was able to just grab the force pickle, the one closest to me. The other two pickles rolled toward the guy. He reached up instinctively and grabbed them. And I thought, oh, this is good. So now I don't even, then I started rolling them. Then I started rolling them. And now I don't even do that. I do a total Blackstone thing. I put my thumb on the force pickle. I turn to the guy and I lean, I tilt the plate a tiny, they don't, they don't, they don't roll anymore. I just told, I say, sir, pick up two pickles. He's looking down. He thinks, I mean, pick up those, those two pickles. I don't say that, but he's in a different position than the audience. He reaches up and I would say only 5% of the time does the guy ever get, sometimes the guy will say, I want that pickle. And this is the other thing that experience and age helps you with is you say, no, pick up the two pick. You know, you got to have the, cajones to, to get your own show kind of an attitude you know and, and you smile as you say it and all that kind of stuff and uh i got my thumb on the one you know that i so uh so that was something that happened accidentally that so i'm glad i thought of that I, nice, that's yeah nice. that's a good one that's great i just have to say john you're doing great because you're, you're leading us right into the next question well, of course Perfect. i'm a professional yeah. <laughs> um talking about the pickle trick um the script. For the By the way, I do things besides the pickle trick. Oh just goodness. so you know, it's nothing worth I'm talking about. It is a good lesson. The, the first time it's I saw you perform was at, it was like an IBM luncheon in town, and I was I have a photo of you. It was like me, you, Sebastian Midvich, and 
uh, Chris Capehart with okay. the lighter. Okay. Oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was a banquet. The banquet yeah, show. Yeah, it was a banquet right. show. And that was, was a close up. And I saw the first time I had ever met you, you did the pickle trick. And it, it, the effect itself is beautiful, but the alliteration of the script blew yeah. my mind. Yeah, it's fun. So, people, if you have not seen this pickle trick, you need to YouTube it, Google it. Yeah, John Eakin pickle trick. And how long did it take you to memorize the alliteration? It's like the whole, Man. The, almost the whole act for that is. All no, that that's the, okay. Here, that's a, it's a really good question because it gives me something that I do believe firmly in in the show. One of the reasons that I'm crap at putting new stuff in the show is I know a lot of guys can do it. I just can't take some sort of stock, even if it's a new thing. You know, the uh, I was playing with the uh, the egg bag, paper bag, egg bag thing. Oh, this would be great! Paper bag, egg bag. It's different. It's fun and stuff like that. <laughs> But the routine is still just an egg bag, you know? A great egg bag routine is Johnny Thompson's egg bag routine. He's doing the egg bag, but he's got all that stuff he does with it, you know? Uh, Jeff Hobson has an egg bag routine. Tom Mullica has. He's not just doing the egg bag. He has a routine that fits him and stuff. I don't want to just go out there and do, you know, the, the amazing XYZ trick that just came out and just do it. It has to have a hook of some kind. And a lot of times it takes me a long, long time of doing it to find out what the hook is. This routine was perfect, though, because the pickle routine, it's all done with alliteration. So for those of you, it's all done with the letter. The entire routine is the letter P. At this point in the presentation, I like to persuade some people to participate in a peculiar piece of prestidigitation. It goes downhill from there, right? <laughs> so and remind me to tell you about I've modified it from Mexico. So... Uh, um, I just lost my train of thought there. So, um, how long did it take me to learn it? Initially, it was uh, it was the first time of me working in an ensemble group before. I was really terrified, uh, and it was a new piece of material which I haven't put anything new in the show at that, at that time in years. So, I I was nervous. I was really nervous. Was, that, was it part of the original routine, or was that something that you added? That, no, no. That what that that is the original that routine. Is, no. Yeah, it's Bill and Lemon, and then this guy wrote this routine that went with it, and. Uh, um, you had to, you just had to learn the routine. I will tell you if anybody ever gets a, a routine like that, uh, people always talk about muscle memory versus whatever the other memory is. I don't know what that is, but, um, the secret for me, having done it now for thousands of shows over all these years is I can't really think too much about what I'm saying. I just have to say it. If I really start thinking too much, I'll stumble a little bit. Now, that lets me, I can still ad live a little bit in that routine and stuff, you know, without any problem, but it, you really just have to like, let it go and, uh, and go on with it. People want to come up to me and they say, Oh, you know, you could say purple pickle. You could say perplexing pickle. It's like, yes, I have a dictionary. I can, I have the letter P I could add all the letters. There's a reason that I've modified the original routine to fit me and what works for me. And that goes to the Mexico thing is I started doing these shows down in Mexico and it was supposed to be all Americans, but all these Mexicans kept sneaking into my show because it's their country. <laughs> I'm just kidding. And uh, and I read yeah, build a wall, build a wall. I said, I'm the Donald Trump of magic. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, exactly. And uh, uh, exactly. And uh, 
so I, I get a guy up. There's the, the pickle guy in the routine. Doesn't really have to say or do very much. The guy that picks the card and all that business, I actually have to do a lot more with. So I can use somebody who speaks very little English, and I speak Spanish, so I can get this guy up. So the original routine, I miscall the guy on my right, Peter, and I miscall the guy on my left, Paul. And it doesn't matter why. I ask him, what's your name? And they say, Jimmy. I say, Peter, nice to see you. So uh, I run over that. So now with the, uh, the guy on my left, I call him Pablo. And that's really good. And I tell the audience, I say, you know, the entertainment staff here at the hotel has been helping me with my Spanish. And in Mexico, they don't call these uh, pickles. They call these pepinos. So here I have uno, dos, tres pepinos that I've cleverly placed on this plato de papel. It shows not only entertaining, but educational. So now at the very end of the show, uh, it's like if this piece of playing card yada, 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 uh, is pulled from the from the uh, pepino that Pablo picked on the plato de papel on his palm, it goes, you know, goes like that, you know. So I was able to like make it work for that. And I, you know, to be honest, I keep I'm keeping it that way now because again, it makes it more individualistic, yeah. makes it more mine, and and something a little bit different. So tell awesome. us a little bit about the the boardwalk busters. Yeah, talked a little bit about it. And how how did the boardwalk busters come about? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right the boardwalk buskers uh, was a three man show at one of the Disney resorts right behind Epcot. Uh, it's called the Disney's Boardwalk Resort. If you haven't been down here, uh, literally right outside the back gate of Epcot is this big lake and surrounded by three or four resorts. And one of them looks like an old Atlantic City boardwalk uh, or what it was. What Disney supposes a 1920s, 30s Atlantic City boardwalk would be with lots of little shops, there's a dance hall, a uh, little carnival area, all those very Coney Island-esque kind of thing. Uh, ESPN is right there. The ESPN, where they broadcast from, is, is right there. And as part of building this and the agreement with the other hotels around, uh, Disney was required to provide live entertainment out there. So it's a little entertainment district, uh, which is an unusual thing outside of the parks at Disney. Uh, they have their Pleasure Island downtown Disney area, which is now under rehab. Uh, and that's really where they focus all their marketing and their energy. So it's kind of a big deal to have something outside of the parks. Um, me and my buddy Rob, my buddies Rob and Steve were already working as solo acts uh, on property all over the place. I was at Diamond Horseshoe and Steve and Rob, you know, we're all doing one-nighters and three-month contracts and stuff like that. So we auditioned for this show that Disney Disney produced it, the Boardwalk Buskers, more or less. We were contract performers. Uh, we've never been cast member employees, so we've always worked as contractors. So it's kind of this really gray area where we fall into. But anyway, uh, we wrote the show. We owned the show. It was our show. But Disney provided us with a really, really cool uh, little golf cart that looked like an antique car. And uh, they built a custom little stage, uh, probably, what, 8 by 12 or something like that, uh, on a trailer. And um, it had a sound system built into it. So we were mic'd. Uh, we had a built-in sound system with this really primitive big button board where we could step, I'm sorry, we could step on the button board and uh, cue uh, like 16 songs or, or sound effects. Uh, and Mark Renfro, who was a Disney show director at this time, helped us. He really directed us under the table because that was outside the contract. And super guy, super talented. And it was a very much a vaudeville-esque kind of a show. And a busker, if you don't know, is like a British term for a, a street performer. So the Borderwell Buskers was perfect and uh, a big part of the success of the show. And it was when it came out, it was hugely successful. I mean, we had managers and entertainers and people coming from all four theme parks to see our show. Uh, we had 
guess because it's it's one of Disney's Vacation Club timeshare properties. Half of the hotel is. Uh, they'd be at Universal, and the little kids are saying, "Come on, Daddy, we got to get back down back to the boardwalk because the show's going to start in an hour." You know, kind of a thing. They'd leave Universal and come or any of the parks and come down to see our show. We had ki- kids, family, adults coming. They'd come to four shows a night every night of their week. They were they were it was it was really amazing. And uh, looking back at the video of the of the show now, uh, it was much better than I realized at the time. I didn't appreciate how good it was. And I really miss it. And it was, I so, so, so wish I could go back and do it again and do it right this time because I could be so much better. But, uh, but it was a great learning experience, great working with the other guys. And we each had characters. It wasn't just that we each had an act in the show. Uh, there, it was tied together. We each participated in each other's act. And yet we each were also featured. So uh, it was a it was a really good show, really good show, and really successful. You guys, you guys really paved the way for the boardwalk because there still are performers out there now. Yeah, that, the show itself probably ran. It ran really hot for three years, and then Steve, well, Steve left like within the first year. He had to leave, and we had a couple of other incarnations, and it, it really lost a little bit more of the magic each time until it did wind up being what we what we used to call. I do something, you do something, and we all do something together. That was the, uh, that's what it, what it, what it kind of wound <laughs> up being. And it just really didn't, I mean, it was just, at that time, it was, it was okay, but it wasn't anything that special. And they went to uh, solo acts after that. What was the transition from the buskers to cruise lines? Okay, um, well, the buskers went away after about, it was actually officially there for just under five years, four and a half years. And then it went, it went away. And then they hired me to do my solo show uh, as a solo. I'm a, I, I put together a medicine pitch at that point. Professor Fondelhoney Flapdoodle from the Dr. Killam Medicine Company. So I did a me- magical medicine pitch as a solo act then. And while I was doing that, some friends of mine that I had worked with, again, as solo acts around Disney, started working ships. And they're like, hey, John, you want to do it? I was like, man, I always wanted to do a cruise ship. And they got me on. And I did one. A week here, a week there. Then it became more and more and more. At the time, it was good for Disney because they wanted every time I took off from my contract, they could bring someone else in to sub, which kept the pot full of sub performers. And then, like a year or two later, one of my buddies in the Disney told me, "You know, this is counting against you. Every time you take off, it's a black mark because they think you don't want to be here." It's like, well, nobody told me that. First, they told me it was a good thing. Now it's a bad thing. So anyway. I was at the boardwalk altogether 10 and a half years. I probably should have left about two years sooner, but it's, it's a, it's a, a honey trap. You know, you get there, it's regular work. Uh, you know what it's about and it takes a lot. Of, I admire somebody. One of our friends just, Nick is just now leaving and it takes a lot of courage to quit a contract that you're making not great money, but living money, decent money on, um, to go do something else, you know? So, uh, I admire anybody that can do that. Me, I got to be fired, <laughs> fire me, then I move on. But by that time I was already into the cruises enough that the cruises then picked up. And I, I, you know, I did 10 years of cruises after, well, all together while it was over that part of it. You want to comment any more on the cruises? Um, how would you say, is your approach any different on the cruises or do you, from the Disney stuff, you mean, or just in general? Just in general, like when you're working a one-nighter. Yeah. How do you approach a cruise ship differently? Do you base it on, are you looking at the demographic of the people on the ship? And, or is the ship telling you, hey, this is what worked in the past? Right. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, we could do a whole thing just on cruise on cruise ship stuff, obviously. And there's probably, I'm sure, there, I can tell you there are much more qualified people than me. But I, mean, I had a really good run on cruises, and the industry itself is morphing right now, which I think has a lot to do with the changes of the people that are like myself who are having a hard time now, uh, is reflected in that because there's some great people, TC and different people like that, that are going through a similar challenge. Um, my cruise show is basically my 45, 60 minute corporate show. It's the same show. Um, but yes, you do have to take the, I worked a lot of Holland America, the average age on Holland America. Uh, well, it's like 75 year olds and their parents, you know, it's, it's that deal. And I mean, I had, I had one, it was not unusual. It's not unusual at any cruise really. And you don't hear about it, but I, mean, I had one cruise. We lost three people died, you know, on the cruise. I mean, the, the freezer ice cream for everybody. We got to make room in the freezer, you know, kind of a thing. No, it's not that bad, but yeah, I really, I had three people on one cruise passed away. So it's not that unusual. And you know, a, a much older crowd, you need to be different. You know, you need to work really a lot slower. I don't work slow very well and I got to work slower. And, um, the nice thing about cruises, if you do get them, you're in a proper theater. It's a theater show and it's your theater for the night. I mean, from the time the door is open, I mean, you can let the house play their, their house music if you want, but if you want to have your music playing, it's really your, your, your night. And so it's up to you to shape it. And that was kind of a nice challenge. It was really fun to do that. You're working with uh, some, depending on the size of the ship, at, you know, at least one, sometimes two or three tech people, somebody running the lights and sound. Uh, stage person sometimes, uh, you know, so you have a little team you're working with. You have, and you have to learn how to rehearse a show, uh, which I never had to do before. You know, it was just me. I go out there, do my thing set up. So I had a lot of other challenges as far as that went, but it was pretty much my corporate show. Um, you know, the other big challenge is people always say, how come all you cruise ship guys do the same tricks? It's because it's gotta, it's gotta do the job but it's got to fit into one suitcase. It can't be over 50 pounds. It's got to, you know, on and on and on and on. You put, you write down all the requirements of where, you know, the, the restraints as well as what it has to accomplish. There's not a lot of magic tricks that can do that. You know, you're not, you're not being booked to do your Azra and your, you know, whatever else, you know, it's like everybody's doing sucker silk. Everybody's doing rings. Everybody's doing, you know, because they, you're multiplying bottles, you know, which is one of my favorite. I, I love multiplying bottles. It's a great closer. Yeah. If you wouldn't have stumbled into that magic shop in Baltimore, as a yeah. kid, what do you think you would be doing now? Man, you guys have good questions. Really good questions. I have thought about that, especially now that I'm, I'm actually kind of poised to maybe take a break from the magic. To be real frank, in my heart, the magic's been super, super good to me. I'm not one of the guys that really likes to sit and hang and talk. I like talk. when I talk to other magicians, I want to talk about bits of business. I want to talk about uh, tricks to get more work. I want to talk about gags. I want to talk about entertainment kind of things that really sell. I'm not really hung up on the latest move. Or the, I don't. I don't have any heavy moves. You know, I don't have a lot to share or show. So for me, it's always been more pragmatic than that. It's got to really. What really sells, you know, give me a good bit. I'll take a good bit over a good trick any day, you know? And um, so because of that, I can't say that. And then again, the backlash of, of, against magicians you get sometimes, like we talked about earlier. Um, I'm not, I, 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 for a long time, I felt that magic, there's, maybe there's something else besides magic that I might be better for. And, and I have a couple of corporate gigs. One of them is this um, hosting 
at the Epcot's Food and Wine Festival, where I'm an MC, I'm the host, I'm the ambassador, as we talked about on stage. And uh, we have a chef that comes up. It could be a world-class chef who's amazing in the kitchen but knows nothing about how to present it. And I say, wait a minute. And I put it in context. I put it in a show format. I communicate the show to the audience. I become the prism through which the show is presented. And I'm really good at that. And I, people have told me, and I can feel it, it's uh, the best I am on stage is doing something like that. I'm far better doing that than I am doing my own show on stage, you know, because I'm trying to force some routine that I picked up that may not be mine or whatever. You know, I don't know. I don't I don't know why. But when I, I'm more myself, I'm more genuine. I'm more likable. All my positive straight the traits are stronger and stuff like that. Back to your original question, though. Uh, I, if I had to pick just out of my hat, so I'd really love to be a teacher. You know, first of all, I think teachers have such an important job, um, especially with, I don't want to say disintegration of the family, but the, the morphing that we have in families right now or in society in general, you know, it's just uh, kids really need good teachers, you know, and uh, there aren't enough of them. And the ones that are there aren't supported enough. But um, when I was in my early 20s, I um, had to, um, I was a long-term sub. I did a whole, a whole semester my old Spanish, my old, my Spanish teacher from middle school was at, had to take a medical leave, and they had me fill in. And I had not gone to, I had not taken any any college classes on how to be a teacher at all. They just threw me in there, and I approached it from a show point of view. Every every uh, class was a show, and I felt really sorry for my first period class because that was like the first rehearsal. By the time I got the seventh period, man, I had it down. I, what I mean by that is. I mean, whatever bits I was coming up to, of course, I'd come up. I'd come up with new bits. But even more importantly, I learned where do kids have a hard time grasping the concept and how did I overcome that? So by the, by the end of the day, I really understood where the highs and lows were. And I, I was anticipating where the trouble was. And, and it went really, really great. So um, I think a teacher uh, would be something to be really great to do. Um, if not, I mean, even now, I'm, I'm looking at like this cruise director thing or, uh, you know, if I could be a host on a, on a, uh, on a cooking show or some or any kind of a show like that. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm told I'm pretty good at doing what you guys do. I'm, pre- I'm a pretty good interviewer, um, keeping the show moving along. And it's about connecting with the audience is what it really comes down to. What I say audience, it may not be an audience, it might be a classroom, but a group of connecting with a group of people, uh, regardless of the situation. I'm always amazed when I see another performer and it doesn't, not necessarily a magician, any performer on stage, and they're starting to have trouble. They're losing the audience. Most often, it's a comedian type of comedy magician or a stand-up comedian or whatever. That's where you feel the pain the most because they take a misstep. Perhaps they push the envelope too far. Whatever it is, they start to lose the audience. And it's happened to all of us. We all do that because the best comedy, of course, is at the edge. And all you got to do is put one toe over the edge and you start to lose the audience. And I guess maybe that's one of my gifts that I can feel the audience. I'm sympathetic that way or empathetic, whatever the term is. But I'm always amazed when I see a performer, they don't change tack. They just keep going down that road and they start to go deeper and deeper. And it's like one of those Spielberg uh, effects where the audience is like, you know, going back like this, you know, the camera's being pulled back. It's like, no, come back. I didn't mean it. And I mean, I would admit do something, you know, you might still lose them, but if you keep going this way, buddy, you're definitely going to lose them, you know, but if you would just, uh, you know, stop a minute, apologize or laugh at yourself or speak faster, speak slower or 
do something different, you know, but don't keep going down the same path. I'm always amazed when performers do that. So, yeah. Speaking of the advice that you just gave, what advice would you give yourself when you were starting out? Like from now, if oh, you could man. look at yourself when you just started, yeah, what you know now, if you look at yourself yeah. as a young magician, young performer, yeah. what advice would you give yourself? Yeah. <laughs> run, run. <laughs> Um, don't return Josh's uh, text. Uh, no, it would be, uh, I thought about this once or twice because I've had the opportunity over the years, uh, young, young performers just getting started of approach or even older people getting started in magic. I mean, a little bit with you with the boardwalk situation when you moved from your serious close up into stand up for the first time, but more with young people is I will tell you whatever tricks, routines, bits that you develop. When you first start in your first five years of performing will become the foundation and your backbone for the rest of your life. So try as pack the bag, pack the case as full, try as much as you can. You know, I only had six routines that I really fully developed to create my first show. Don't do that. Create six more, create six more, create six more because you're already terrified. You're already bombing. You're already struggling. Just but just keep throwing more on the fire and uh and get them in your back pocket even if you don't fully flesh them out because you'll wish you had more material later on or different material or you know this thing and uh, my buddy steve just started doing cruise ships he's working in, he speaks japanese but he also because of his ringling background has a lot of silent magic he can do as well he was just booked on a ship. It was supposed to be 25% Chinese. He speaks Japanese. And it was sailing out of China. And uh, they wanted a 25-minute show. He gets there. It's 100% Chinese. And it's an hour-long show they want. What do you do? And he started, you know, thinking back, well, what can I do? He's, you know, really, and he realized when he started putting it all together, wow, I got more material than I realized that was silent. And he was able to do it. And he, I would have bombed i would have complete my entire act is talking almost you know so you know put together different stuff that would be my advice to myself if i were doing it and um everything else has been pretty great i mean i wouldn't change anything else i mean a lot of the stuff you think is killing you is really helping you along the way and you got to be careful what you wish for as far as you know what, what would I change questions because some of those things that you that were inflicted upon you actually were important lessons to learn. Um, so, yeah, it may not be good to make it all sweet and clean and stuff. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That was easy. Thank you. Is that, gentlemen, that is is that of any use to anybody? Yeah, I don't know. That's <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Johnny. All right. I would have some more Diet Coke, and I bet my friends would love some more. Oh, uh, yeah, I'll definitely take another one. I'll have another Stella. Thanks. We're still recording. We're having cool. beer. Having yeah. beer. That's how you hang out with No, but I think, people. like, that's the official sort of interview. But, like, everybody.